You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 6. In today's Tidbit Tuesday, I'm going to share five ways to protect yourself from ticks and to reduce your risk of requiring tick-borne illnesses while doing landscape or nature photography. And then I'll answer a listener question on where to focus in landscape photography. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. In today's Tidbit Tuesday, we're going to talk about the ladder connecting with nature. And I'm not talking about immersing yourself in the breathtaking wonder of it, but rather we're going to talk about some of the creepy crawlies you may encounter while doing so. This episode is coming out during the middle of the spring season in the Northern Hemisphere. And for many of us, this means tick season. These tiny blood-sucking arachnids are often overlooked and may seem harmless given their incredibly small size, but they can cause severe health problems if we're not careful and take the proper precautions. So today, we're going to talk about five ways to protect yourself from ticks while doing outdoor photography. But first, here are some fun facts about ticks. So depending on their developmental stage or species, ticks can range in size from being as small as a poppy seed to as large as a pencil eraser. And they are found all over the world. So wherever their natural hosts live, which includes mammals, birds, reptiles, and even amphibians, they prefer to reside in grassy, brushy, and wooded areas, and they prefer climates that have warm and humid seasons. They are parasites and require blood meals at each developmental stage, and as such, they can transmit disease at any developmental stage as well. And ticks can find you by what's called questing. So they basically hang out on a twig or leaf with their hind legs, and they keep their front legs stretched out and just at the ready to grasp an unsuspecting passerby. And it's important to remember that while most tick bites can be harmless, Some can actually transmit disease-causing bacteria, viruses, and parasites, and so that's why we're having this conversation today. One concept that I'd like to bring up in this discussion is the difference between a hazard and a risk. So oftentimes, people conflate these two terms, but they actually have different meanings. So a hazard is something that can cause you physical harm, whereas a risk is the probability of exposure to the hazard. So the two ways to reduce risk is to either eliminate the hazard or eliminate the exposure. So when it comes to hazards like tick-borne illnesses, what we need to do is reduce our exposure to the ticks. So obviously, one way to do this is to just stay inside all the time, but that's no fun. So what can we do instead? Well, let's dive into our five tips. So tip number one is wear proper clothing. And we're going for function over fashion here. So this means wearing long pants, preferably with the pants actually tucked inside your socks, long sleeves and closed toed shoes. So the goal here is to reduce the potential access 
the tick could have to your cozy, delicious skin. (laughs) And if it's hot out, consider wearing clothing that is breathable and lighter in color so you don't get too hot. And actually, the lighter color of the clothing will also make it easier to spot the dark colored ticks. So tip number two is to use a tick repellent on your clothing and outdoor gear. And this can come in different forms. So one way is to get clothing that's already been pre-treated with a tick repellent or pesticide. One that's commonly used is called permethrin. And this is a chemical that basically makes the ticks unable to bite after they've come in contact with it. And you can buy permethrin-treated clothing or even just permethrin spray that you can safely use on your clothes, boots, backpacks, tents, and so forth. And I'll put links in the show notes for some examples. Just obviously don't use the permethrin spray on your camera gear. (laughs) And also don't apply it directly to your skin. And there's another tick repellent that's good for skin applications that I'll, I'll mention in just a minute. So there are a couple of precautions that you should take with permethrin. So one, it's best to spray your clothing or your boots when you're not wearing them and let them dry first before wearing that particular article of clothing. And it's actually good for about six washes in the laundry before you need to reapply it. And the second precaution is that if you have cats, it's best to use it at uh, less than 1% concentration because it can become uh, a little bit toxic to cats. And third, if you do any photography near rivers, streams, or lakes and use gators or any other sort of equipment or clothing that comes into water, then I would avoid using it because it can also be toxic to aquatic life. Okay, so what can you spray on the areas of your body that aren't protected by clothing? Well, the two recommended repellents are DEET and picaridin. DEET has been the insect repellent of choice for outdoor enthusiasts for forever, it seems because of its effectiveness. However, some people have skin reactions to it, and it can also deteriorate water repellent treatments like Gore-Tex, so you don't really want to use it on your outdoor gear. Picaridin, on the other hand, is a synthetic compound that's based on the natural compounds found in black pepper. And so it's generally considered to be less irritable than DEET, and it can be used on the skin, and also clothing, some plastics, and other synthetic materials. And there are other options for skin-safe repellents, such as oil of lemon eucalyptus. And I'll put a link in the show notes to these and also to an environmental protection agency's uh, search tool on different repellents if you want to look up even other options. Tip number three, when you're hiking, stick to the middle of the trail as much as possible because ticks are usually found in the grassy overgrowth areas on the edges of trails and also on the branches that tend to be at shoulder height. And so you're less likely to encounter these in the middle of the trail. Tip number four, when you return home, be sure to check yourself for ticks. And if you can, it's best to remove your clothing before entering your home so that you don't bring any of them inside with you. And keep in mind that ticks are especially attracted to the warmer areas of your body, including your armpits, sides, groin area, hairline, and the creases of your elbows and knees, and even behind your ears. So those would be the places to check first. And also, sometimes it's easier to feel the ticks rather than seeing them because they can be so small. So make sure you feel around with your hands as well. And since ticks may be left on your clothing after you take them off, It's a good idea to launder them or tumble your clothes in a dryer for about 10 minutes or so on high heat, and that should 
remove the ticks. And don't forget to also inspect your camera backpack and any other gear you took along as well to make sure that they're not just hanging out there. Tip number five, what do you do if you find a tick? Well, if it's unattached, then just dispose of it by either drowning it in some rubbing alcohol, flushing it down the toilet, and no, it won't swim back up the drain, or sealing it in some tape before throwing it away. Now, what do you do if it is attached? Well, first, try not to panic. And keep in mind that if you remove it right away, say you find it within the first 24 to 36 hours of attachment, you're much less likely to contract an illness. Second, when you are trying to remove the tick, do it as gently as possible. So you want to take a pair of tweezers and grasp the tick's head as close to the skin as possible and pull straight out in the direction of the tick's body. So basically like perpendicular to the skin without twisting it. And it's it's just the mouth parts that are embedded in your skin, not the head. But if you try to do things like adding oils or heat or petroleum jelly or things like that, that's just going to aggravate the tick and it's more likely to push in further or release the pathogens that it's carrying through its saliva. So it's very important to try to be as gentle and calm as possible when trying to remove the tick. And I'll put a link in the show notes to a video that demonstrates how this is done properly. And if you do get it out, it's a good idea to save it in a piece of tape in case you do develop symptoms down the road so that your healthcare provider can more easily make a diagnosis. And if you start to feel ill or develop a rash or fever or have any unusual symptoms like that, obviously contact your healthcare provider immediately and let them know that you were bitten by a tick and they'll let you know what the next steps to take are. Okay, so hopefully that information will help you reduce your risk of acquiring tick-borne illnesses while enjoying the outdoors. And now let's get to your submitted questions. This week's listener question comes from RJ. Hi, Brenda. My question is, where do you focus if landscape photography when using zoom lens? Thank you, RJ, for this question. Where to focus in landscape photography is a big topic, and I may go into more details on it in a future episode, but you asked specifically where to focus using a zoom lens. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume you meant where to focus when using a telephoto lens. So zoom lenses are lenses that have a range of focal lengths, allowing you to zoom between that range of focal lengths. So For example, let's take one of my favorite lenses, which is the 24 to 70 millimeter lens. This is a zoom lens that has a focal length range of 24 to 70 millimeters. And this is as opposed to a prime lens, which just has one focal length. Many landscape photographers use wide angle lenses to include as much of the scene as possible or to emphasize foreground elements. And wide angle lenses typically are in the focal length range of, say, 14 millimeters up to around, say, 35 millimeters. And these lenses can be either zoom or prime lenses. Telephoto lenses are lenses that have focal lengths of greater, say, than around 70 millimeters. And therefore, they have narrower fields of view, which has the effect of bringing you closer to your subject by filling the frame with the subject rather than it just being a small part of the entire scene. And a telephoto lens can also be either a zoom or prime lens. So for example, a common mid-range telephoto lens that's used in landscape photography is the 70 to 200 millimeter lens. 
And a wildlife photographer may use a telephoto zoom lens in the 200 to 600 or even greater range. So does using a telephoto lens change where you set your focus point in a landscape image? Or rather, another way of maybe asking your question is, does focal length determine where you should focus? And like many answers in photography, it depends. So it depends on what your subject is and how you want to present that to the viewer. What do you want to communicate and how do you want to tell that story in your image? For example, do you want to use a shallow depth of field to create some mystery or a deep depth of field to get everything in sharp focus? Or do you want to include elements in the scene like leading lines? Or perhaps you want to exclude objects in the scene to focus the viewer's attention even more. So first, answering these sorts of compositional questions will help you determine where you should focus regardless of the focal length you're using. However, one thing you may be wondering is whether the hyperfocal distance method of focusing can be used with a telephoto lens. And the short answer is that it's not a practical choice since the longer the focal length of the lens, the farther away the hyperfocal distance is. And depending on your sensor size and aperture, effectively everything in your scene will be at infinity anyway. So in these situations, you can just focus on the main subject in your scene and the whole scene should be acceptably sharp. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this Tidbit Tuesday. And as always, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find all the links and other information mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode six. And thank you to those of you who have submitted questions to the podcast. I really enjoy hearing from you and I look forward to answering them on future episodes. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and click the button to record your question. Next week on the podcast, we have wildlife conservation photographer Jamie Heinbuck coming on the show to talk about visual storytelling and creating images with impact. And shortly after that, we'll have biologist turned landscape photographer Rob Hirsch who shares his experiences photographing Yosemite and the surrounding Sierra Nevada. And I'll be back here next week. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.